for Luke chapter 17, starting at verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and the lights go up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they say to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpses, there the vultures will gather. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will, find faith, will he find faith on earth? Thank you, Esther. Please do keep that passage open in front of you on page 876, and let me pray for God's help as we come to God's word. Our Father in heaven, we do pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say and hearts to trust you. Pray that you would find faith in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me begin with a fairly serious topic and question. What are you making of the pictures and the news coming out of Ukraine. It's just horrendous, isn't it? A few of the things that brought tears to our household, a pregnant mother and child being carried out on a stretcher together, an old lady being helped down from a smoking apartment block, and then a theater housing civilians and children bombed to smithereens. That's not another world. It's a European neighbor. As Robin was saying, one of our mission partners has family there. One of the associates I was involved in training in London is now a church leader in Moldova, just, just on the um, border. 
his house is close enough that it vibrates with the shelling and his family's in it. And not just his family, but refugee families that have come over the border. Many Christian brothers and sisters are caught up fleeing in fear for their lives through no fault of their own. And it's not just Ukraine. In the morning service in Bite Size, we were hearing about the situation for Christians in Afghanistan. Tiny minority, massively at risk. Not just their livelihoods, but their lives. God's people, so vulnerable, so at risk. And it's not just Afghanistan. We could go on and on. I think when we see those things, it should be enough for us to cry out, How long, O Lord? How long until you do something about the injustice, the war, the evil in this world? And actually, that prayer is in our passage. I wonder if you noticed it. Chapter 18, verse 7, just near the end. 18, verse 7. Will not God give justice to his elect, that's the church, his people, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? How long will it be before God answers prayers for justice? How long, O Lord? Or to put that question another way, when will God's kingdom come? When will God's kingdom come in full? That's the question that starts the passage, 17 verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. Now, how come the the passage begins asking about the kingdom of God and ends up asking about justice? Well, because one of the clearest promises in the Old Testament, before the part of the Bible before Jesus, is that one day God's kingdom would come in full and it would bring peace and justice to the world. That is, one day God would send his chosen king, the Messiah from David's line, to put a stop to injustice and bloodshed and the bullying of God's people by whoever nearby had the biggest army. That we've been seeing that. If you've been in the evening series we've done in Daniel, the book of Daniel, amazing book, um, predicts kind of centuries of, of history ahead, um, still to come in Daniel's day. But actually, the predictions are pretty scary. Basically, Israel, Daniel's told, is going to be tossed to and fro by superpower kingdom after superpower kingdom. Back then, it was Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome. A kind of seemingly never-ending roll call of international bullies. The empires were, were pictured as ravenous beasts, kind of tearing chunks out of the weak. But then, there was a hope. Daniel was told, when Rome arrives, well, then would begin another kind of kingdom... God's kingdom, God's eternal kingdom would turn up. A kingdom so strong, it would never fall, unlike the kingdoms of this world. A kingdom so powerful, it would fill the earth. That was the promise. And the figure to rule this kingdom was the Son of Man. This person chosen by God as the judge of all humanity, living and dead. One day there'll be justice, the day the Son of Man comes. One day God's kingdom will come. One day God would do something about the international news headlines. So what went wrong when Jesus turned up? I mean, the Christmas readings that we get from the start of Luke's gospel are full of talk about peace, that this will be the one to guide our feet into the way of peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. If Jesus really is the promised king, how come we don't have the promised justice. What happened to the coming of God's kingdom? 
Well, that's the issue. When is God's kingdom actually going to come? It's the issue here. I said 17 verse 20. The Pharisees are asking it. If you just flick over the page to chapter 19. Thank you. Rustles of paper are so relieving at this moment. Chapter 19 verse 11. This is the end of our section. We're in, it. We're in the kind of last section of, of the journey to Jerusalem. And at the end of the section, you get chapter 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to, as Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So at the start of the section and at the end, the issue is when does the kingdom come? Is it about to come when Jesus gets to Jerusalem? That's the topic the coming of the kingdom. Now, the answer to that question, when does the kingdom come, is not simple, actually, because there's a now and a not yet to the coming of Jesus' kingdom. Last week, if you were here, we heard about the now of the kingdom, that Jesus is already offering forgiveness and and cleansing. It was the picture of the lepers. Verse 19, of chapter 17, sorry, verse 19. Jesus said to the leper, rise and go your way. Your faith has literally saved you. So right now, you can be saved. But there's a not yet of the kingdom. Something hasn't happened yet. And our passage today is going to be about the what hasn't happened yet. Um, Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. I hope you're with me. Um, So to put it another way, look at verse 21 of chapter 17, where Jesus says, look, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So in one sense, it's already come. Once Jesus has arrived, salvation, the gates are open. But, verse 22 onwards, most of our passage is about how it's not yet here. Now, you'll see an outline on the service sheet of where we're going. We've got three points to say, but really all of them are about a delay. In all of our points, Jesus is going to say, there's a, there's a gap. There's going to be a, a while while he's away before he returns as the Son of Man. So then, let's get into point one. From verses 22 to 25, Here's point one. Jesus will go away for a while before his unmissable return as the Son of Man. Jesus will go away for a while before his unmissable return as the Son of Man. Hopefully you can see where I'm getting that from, verse 22. Um, And let's just say, I was chatting to someone at the first service uh, who's new to this church, new to this kind of church, and she said, "It, it seems like you just kind of go through saying what the passage says. And I was like, yes, that's the aim. That is the aim. Um, So let's just look at what Jesus says in verse 22. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Striking promise, this. The disciples so far have witnessed lots of miraculous evidence that Jesus really is God's chosen man, the King, the Judge, the Son of Man. But now he's saying, I'm going to be absent for a while. Now, partly that's verse 25. He must first suffer many things and be rejected. He's going to Jerusalem to die on the cross. But it's more than that, actually. He's talking about a longer period of delay than just those three days between the cross and his resurrection. Jesus is saying there's going to be an extended time when you'll long for the day of my return. Why would people be longing for that? Well, because they're watching the news of Ukraine or experiencing the persecution in Afghanistan, or even just the hostility to Jesus around us sometimes in Scotland. How long, O Lord? How long? 
until there's proper justice on earth? How long until the Son of Man puts a stop to it all and holds people accountable? Well, Jesus warns there's going to be a delay. He doesn't say how long here. We're not told in in the New Testament how long. And it might well be after 2,000 years, some of us might be thinking, is it really going to happen? In fact, it could lead us vulnerable to claims from different individuals that they've got some kind of special way into the fullness of God's kingdom. You know, a particular individual or a particular place is the place to be if you want God's kingdom in its fullness. Surprising, actually, how easily Christians can be duped by that. Whether it was first century Ephesus being told the resurrection's already happened, or 21st century God TV teaching a prosperity gospel where if you come to Jesus with enough faith, there'll be health and wealth right now. But Jesus says, verse 23... They'll say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up from the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Jesus is saying, look, when I come back, it will be unmissable, like sheet lightning. You don't have to be in a particular spot to see it. It just fills the entire sky at once, from east to west, one side to the other. You're not going to miss it when I come So don't be fooled in the meantime, whether by a prophet or a pope, whether by a Christian prophet or an Islamic prophet. If anyone comes along and saying they're actually God's judge of what's true, well, don't listen, don't be fooled. The days are coming when your desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, you will not see it, don't be fooled. That's the first thing to clock. And of course, as you read on in Luke and Acts, that's exactly what happened. Jesus went to the cross, died, rose again, and then went away and said to his disciples, I will come back the way I went. And let me just say, just personally, I'm so glad Jesus prepared us like this. I think if he hadn't said this, it would be really easy to lose certainty about whether he was ever going to return, whether justice would ever happen. Because In lots of ways, life has carried on as normal since AD 33. I mean, there's been a massive global expansion of the church, which in itself is striking. But apart from that, where is this great kingdom that's been spoken about? Where is this promise of justice? Well, Jesus told us explicitly there's going to be a delay. And actually, even more than that, point two, he told us explicitly that life would go on normally for a while, before the Son of Man's sudden, definitive judgment. I'm getting that from verses 26 to 37. Here, Jesus compares his return to the days of Noah and the days of Lot, back in the book of Genesis at the start of the Bible. Why compare with those days? Why those moments in humanity's history? Well, because they were moments of dramatic judgment from God's. The flood of Noah's day, the fire that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus is saying that the judgment of God is still going to come. It hasn't been cancelled, it's delayed. In other words, those cries for justice that ring so hard out of war zones and from the persecuted and abused minorities will be answered in the end. Actually, Jesus is drawing a number of parallels with those moments of judgment. Just look at the first one, verse 27. Life was going on normally 
Verse 27, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, verse 28, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The point is, life was going on as normal. People were just doing the normal stuff, planning weddings, building extensions, doing business, getting a Mackey D's or a Morningside coffee with brioche, if that's your thing. Planting spring seeds because they knew that summer vegetables were coming. And then, cataclysmic destruction fell. The living God, the judge of all the earth, said, enough, enough's enough. And sudden destruction came. I find this so striking. I don't know about you, but one of the reasons I find it hard to to remember, hard to trust with real certainty that a, a day of judgment is coming, one of the hard things is that life just feels so normal. Doesn't it? It's just, things just tick along, you know, just the normal stuff, the school run, the paying the bills, the buying the groceries, the planning the diary. We can fool ourselves into thinking this is all there is and this is all there ever will be. But Jesus told us that's exactly how it would feel. He pointed out that's how it was in Noah's day. All that talk of a coming deadly flood and the need to take refuge, well, it would have sounded crazy in that dry Middle East environment. Come on, Noah, you can't be serious. Just forget about that and live a little. Get on with life. We are. Likewise in Sodom and Gomorrah, the day before it was destroyed, there was no sign that that would be the last day those shops were open, the last time any drinks were served, and the last chance to seek safety and forgiveness with God. And Jesus looks at those examples and and issues an equally serious warning for us now. He's deadly serious. This is where the universe is heading, this day of judgment, the day of the Son of Man. And when he does return as the Son of Man, it will be definitive, a sudden, decisive, destructive moment of judgment. Verse 30. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. You can hear the kind of urgency, can't you, of the moment? When this judgment comes, it's too late to pop downstairs and get your laptop bag. In fact, verse 32, remember Lot's wife. That's referring back to the story in Genesis when when they're escaping from the town and she looks back at the world and life she left and the judgment ends up falling on her as well. It's actually the same warning Jesus gave us all at the start of the journey when he said, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. The point Jesus is saying is, we mustn't be more attached to the things of this world than we are attached to Jesus. Whatever it is, whether relationships, wealth, comfort, security. We've actually heard that again and again in Luke as we followed along with Jesus. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot put any family relationship above Jesus. More starkly, verse 33. 
Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. Again, we've heard this before. This was what Jesus said just at the start of the journey when he said, if anyone wants to follow me, he's going to have to take up his cross and, and deny himself and follow me. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will keep it. That's the bottom line. It's striking Jesus teaches this because sometimes people don't become Christians because they think it's too costly. Just got so much to lose, my reputation. Uh, having, to, having to kind of think with Jesus' priority and how I use my time or my money or whatever else, my future. But Jesus says, don't be foolish. If you try and cling on to what the world offers and keep Jesus at arm's length, in the end you lose it all anyway when he returns. Whereas live for him, and though it's costly with various challenges, there's a guarantee of eternal life in his kingdom to come. That in itself is pretty stark, but actually verses 34 and 35, I think, make it even starker. Because that dividing line is being drawn already, and it's being drawn through the most close contexts, the closest family or work context. Look at verse 34. I tell you, in that night, this day of the Son of Man, there'll be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There'll be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. So these two women, they've been grinding corn side by side, workmates, colleagues, sat at the same desks for years. They probably know loads about each other. But one thing really mattered. One of them had trusted Jesus for forgiveness. One was ready to meet the return of the Son of Man. One was safe. And verse 34 says that can happen in a family as well. Even closer, two in the same bed. It all depends on whether we've responded to Jesus' call. Now at that point, I wonder if we're beginning to see why all the way through Luke, Jesus' priority has been to tell people about forgiveness. Had lots of striking moments when he hasn't continued to just um, uh, heal sickness or, or provide some practical care because his priority has been to speak of forgiveness. And now we're finding out why. Because he knows that day is coming. And he knows what it will be like. He knows the only place to hide is in him. That's our second point. Life will go on normally for a while before the Son of Man's sudden, devastating judgment. So don't be more attached to life here than to him. Now, if you're confused by verse 37 and what, what on earth those vultures are doing, um, lots of the commentaries are confused as well. Um, it is quite hard to work out what's going on. But I actually think it's another picture like the lightning in verse 24. So um, when there's a corpse in kind of open ground, uh, the vultures would circle around above it, and you could see that for miles and miles. The question in verse 37 is, where, Lord? Maybe the disciples are thinking, oh, like Sodom and Gomorrah, that was a particular town, so tell us, where is this event going to happen? Like, are we talking about Jerusalem or, or some other place? And Jesus' point is, no, the return of the Son of Man is not a kind of just there kind of thing. It's like lightning. 
It's like vultures over a corpse. You can see it for miles and miles around, east to west. This is a global judgment on all humanity. It will be unmissable. And I think it will be grim. I mean, that's the other thing the vultures and corpse image reminds us. It's a sobering, grim image. At which point, perhaps some of us sitting here listening or listening online are thinking, hang on, how can a loving, good God ever bring a day of judgment like this, whether in Noah's day or Solomon Gomorrah or today? How can a loving God bring cataclysmic judgment? But remember the question we started with. How could a good, loving God not do something about evil? How can he let evil go? How can he witness injustice and, and, and people mistreating others and not do anything? Well, actually, this is the answer. The Son of Man is the answer. That one day, Jesus, righteous Jesus, will judge every single human being, living and dead. Everyone, actually, will be held to account. And that's the scary thing, actually. It's not just the really wicked people we see out there. It's the really wicked person in here in my heart. By God's standards, everyone will be in trouble. But we might say, well, hang on. Yeah, I know God is just, so maybe some kind of reckoning has to happen, but isn't God also gracious and and merciful and kind? Yes, he is, which is why Jesus is telling us before it happens. That's why Jesus came the first time at all before he came as the Son of Man to judge the living and the dead. That's the whole point, actually, of this journey. Where is Jesus walking? Well, he says this. He's walking to Jerusalem to die on the cross for us, to pay for all the ways we've wronged God and wronged others. That, actually, is the extraordinary good news of Christianity that the judge of all the earth was willing in his patience to hold back the day of justice that he might come in his grace to suffer and die for us to be forgiven. It's absolutely mind-blowing. And that does mean that right now we're living in this window of opportunity, this, this time of delay. It means, for any here who are not yet trusting Jesus, I want to say to you as straight as I can, now is the time to get right with Jesus. Not tomorrow. Because I don't actually know if tomorrow will happen. It will be a normal day when Jesus returns. A very normal day with coffees and meetings and school runs and Netflix. And that will be the last day the last opportunity to find forgiveness. Our passage next week, from chapter 18, 9 onwards, our passage next week tells us how we can be sure that we're forgiven, that we're okay in God's sight. So next week, come back if you want to hear more about that. But actually, next week might not happen. (laughs) Struck me, actually, I want to pray at the end of this talk I'll pray a prayer asking for forgiveness because if there's someone here who's not yet sure if they've trusted Jesus for forgiveness, this would be a great day to do it. So I'll pray that in just a moment at the end. 
But before I do, uh, Jesus does carry on in chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, to help Christians know how to live in the meantime. Does that make sense? Um, So we saw last week the kingdom of God has has begun. It's in the midst of you in some ways. We've seen this week it's not yet come in full because the Son of Man hasn't yet brought the day of judgment. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, point three, the need to persevere in prayer will go on for a while. That's the point. Uh, Chapter 18, verse 1. I love this comment. It's like, if, if we're getting tired, Luke really doesn't want us to miss the point of point three, so he tells us just what we're supposed to get out of the parable. 18 verse one, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose hearts. How do we live in light of the delay? Well, don't lose hearts. Be easy to, I think, given it's been so long given the world seems to go on oblivious as normal. Don't lose hearts. And so do pray. Persevere in prayer. What should we do in light of the situation for Christians in Afghanistan or or Ukraine or other countries? We should pray. How should we pray? What should we pray? Well, let's read this this, um, parable. Verse 2, Jesus said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now, this parable can feel a bit puzzling. I wonder if you felt that, because the judge figure doesn't sound anything like God. He's unrighteous, doesn't care about justice. He's unloving, doesn't care about the widow. He just gets worn down by the badgering. So, Kind of how is that a good picture of how prayer actually works? But the point is, Jesus is saying, look, if that judge, that dodgy judge, who doesn't care about justice or this person in front of him, if even he responded to persistent prayer, well, how much more will our Heavenly Father, who loves his people, elect chosen, he loves them, and he's righteous, So he loves justice. How much more willing is he to bring swift and speedy justice when the moment comes? You see that? There's no reluctance in God's heart, Father, Son, Spirit, to bring justice on that final day. In fact, but for his kindness to offer the window for people to get right with Jesus, but for his kindness it would already have come. We can also, I think, learn from the widow's desperation. What can she do but plead for help in her position? And really, as God's people, we are weak. I mean, what can we do faced with the massive injustices of the world, especially the great powers of the world? It's a wonderful thing when Christians do help in practical ways, advocating for justice 
I think it's great that we're going to be involved in, in helping um, give uh, homes to, to refugees. But we do need to be realistic about what we can achieve. True justice is not going to come until the day of the Son of Man. And I think we do need to be realistic about what is the priority in love. Because there really is no more important question than the question of forgiveness. And that, in verse 8, is where Jesus takes us to end this passage. Striking that, we have a question for God. When will your kingdom come? And it's right that we pray that. It's right that we're praying, your kingdom come. Our Father in heaven, may your kingdom come. It's right that we're praying that both come back, Lord Jesus, and please extend your kingdom as people turn and trust in you. Your kingdom come. But ultimately, a more important question than our question for God, when will your kingdom come, is his question for us. Verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Actually, ultimately, that's the only question that matters in a life. When we meet Jesus, our maker and judge, will we be ready? What does it take to be ready? Well, to have faith, like the leper. Your faith has saved you. Or next week, to cry for mercy, like the tax collector. What does it look like to live with faith as one of God's people, if you've already trusted in Jesus? Well, to keep praying and to not lose heart. I've actually been quite struck by um, 18 verse 7. This is a description of how God's people, his church, pray. And it just struck me, how often do I pray like that? Do I pray persistently? And do I pray asking for justice? Do I pray your kingdom come? As I reflected on my own life, I think after so many, of, so many years of prosperity and peace and privilege in the particular place I'm in, I wonder if it's easy to drift into thinking, oh, maybe Jesus doesn't really need to come back to this world. Maybe our cries for justice are not quite as fervent as this widow. But as I've reflected on that in my own heart, I've realized that's not because horrific injustices are not occurring, but just I'm closing my eyes to them, both around the world and actually across the UK behind closed doors. It's one of the good things when horrible stuff is on our TV screens. It wakes us up to this world we live in. And I hope, therefore, it wakes up the cry of our hearts. Come, Lord Jesus, your kingdom come. Let me lead us in prayer as we close. And I am going to pray a prayer that if you want to trust in Jesus as your saviour and your king, you can echo this in your heart after me. Jesus said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus' warnings here. We thank you there will be a day of justice. We admit 
that by your standards, we are not innocent, but guilty. And so we thank you for the cross where Jesus died to pay for us. Forgive us, we pray, and help us to live by faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen.